Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And before we proceed any further, I want to extend a huge thanks to Bev Capshaw, who hosted the show in my absence the last two Wednesdays and did a wonderful job. As for today's program, my guest is Amy Kite, Executive Director of Bush Wildlife Sanctuary, which is located in Jupiter, Florida. It is a multifaceted operation serving as wildlife refuge, veterinary hospital, rehabilitation facility, and educational center, treating nearly 5,000 animals each year and housing about 200 resident animals that are either being rehabilitated or for a variety of reasons could not be reintroduced to the wild. Of course, it's not uncommon on Talking Animals to speak with the executive director of a sanctuary. Indeed, I spoke with Kite about Bush Wildlife Sanctuary nearly three years ago. But today's conversation will represent a topic we've never addressed on this show before. What if a sanctuary, particularly one with an on-site vet hospital and a sprawling mix of animals, including an alligator, a crocodile, bobcats, Florida panthers, bears, a slew of snakes, and a flock of birds, decided to move to a different location? This is not a hypothetical question in that the facility recently purchased a 19-acre parcel of land in nearby Jupiter Farms and will relocate the whole enterprise there. We'll discuss with Kite how they're approaching organizing such a panoramic, ambitious relocation with an emphasis on their strategy for transferring the animals. When I speak with Amy Kite in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Before I outline another facet of today's show, let me mention that continuing in the vein of WNF shift to one or two day fun drives, Talking Animals will be raising money for the station two weeks from today. That's January 20th. Returning to our normal ways of thanking you for pledges on behalf of Talking Animals, I'll be offering such exclusive thank you gifts as a week's stay in a newly remodeled Kauai condo, books by recent guests Carl Safina and Jeffrey Mason, signed by the authors, by the way, CDs featuring all dog songs by Nashville artists, pet hair, removing gizmos, and more. To help me get a head start on my fundraising goal, you can go online to WMNF.org and donate via the tip jar just please be sure to indicate your donation is intended for Talking Animals. If you'd like to make arrangements to pledge for a specific Talking Animals gift, please email me at duncan at wmnf.org. Meanwhile, later in this show, I'll speak with Don Goldstein, our longtime Greyhound correspondent. Of course, now that 2020 has ended, so has Greyhound racing in Florida. But like many animal welfare issues, this one occupies a bit of a gray area, meaning in particular that not all the Florida dogs have ended their racing careers. Don will fill us in on this later. Right now, though, let's talk wildlife sanctuaries, particularly packing one up and moving it with Amy, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Amy Kite, back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. How are you? Great. Thanks for joining us again on Talking Animals. 
Hey, thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. For sure. So the first time we spoke on the show was just shy of three years ago when you had just been named executive director of Bush Wildlife Sanctuary. A lot has happened since then. It's a busy place with a lot of moving parts. And of course, we're chiefly here today to discuss the way the sanctuary will at some point be a collection of literally moving parts. But speaking of kind of distinctive things, before we delve into the focus of today's conversation and moving that whole sanctuary again to a different location, I want to touch on one strike aspect of your background that we did discuss last time, just because I think there's a, a sort of a narrative arc that's significant, I think, for people that, that we talk with on this uh, kind of a show. So as I recall, didn't you love animals so much and so young that you were helping out at a veterinarian's office at age six? <laughs> yeah, that is correct. Wow. So tell us a little bit about what that involved. I mean, what, what can a six-year-old do at a vet's office that's A, staying out of the way and B, somewhat helpful? Well, um, a lot of things that they came up with over time. Okay. There would be certain things, like, for instance, they did exotic pets there also. So a turtle would come in, and they'd have me babysit the turtle and make sure it didn't run away or something. Okay. Just, you know, just keep her occupied. (laughs) I'm sure we covered this before, but I can't quite recall. How did you first make the case as a six-year-old at a veterinarian's office that, hey, I can be helpful and I'd really like to be involved here? Well, it's not really the way I was able to make a case. I was actually just being really annoying, and they wanted to stop. Well, that's that's a way to make a case sometimes, right? Yeah. I was crying, and basically, you know, to to try to, you know, uh, filter it out for you a little bit, my father and I used to go every Saturday morning to the same little restaurant, and that little strip mall down in Lantanas is still right in Palm Beach County where we currently are. They bought a grooming shop in there, and I said, I want a job. I want to work there. My dad said, okay, go ahead. Go for it, you know, knowing they'd never allow it. And I went in, and I said, I'd like a job, and they, oh, you know, how cute. She's adorable. And I'm like, no, seriously, like, give me a job. <laughs> yeah, I'm not and kidding around here, pal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, I don't understand. What's the big deal? Yeah. And um, they would not. I started crying. We went down to the little restaurant where we always ate. And uh, actually, our family veterinarian was in there who happened to grow up in the same small town in Ohio as my parents. They all knew each other. Mm. Said hello, and what's wrong with her? Why is she crying? What's going on? He said, she wants a job. They want you know, explain the story. And she said, you know what? Saturday morning, come on over. We'll be happy to give you a job. I have a feeling she might have had a couple beers. The Ohio State game was on. Okay. But I took that approval, and I ran with it. Well, and also, of course, she saw a crying little girl, which uh, whether you've had a beer or two or not is is a tough thing to just stand by and not do anything about. Well, yeah, and she knew my family. Right. I mean, this was, you know, 35 years ago now. So there wasn't the same liability issues that we deal with. I'm sure. Time and insurance and, you know, doing something like that was like, she'll be fine. We'll let her take out the trash. She can, and I don't think they thought it would last either. It was like, right. we'll get her to stop crying. She'll come in one day and we're going to lose interest. And I ended up staying there till I was like 22. So. Wow. <laughs> lose interest. <laughs> that yeah, and again, I'm sure when they when they saw you initially in that restaurant, they thought, okay, two three weeks, she you know something else is going to come up, and we've done a nice thing, and that's the end of the story. Never imagining years and years would go by. That's great. And, and then it 
And then as it went by, it was funny. When I got to be a teenager, I actually left because a lot of the animals that I knew as a youngster were getting up there in age, and you were losing some of them. And it was mm. just very sad. And yeah. I kind of withdrew from it, and I started getting into wildlife, actually. And they would call me back when they would get short of staff and go, hey, you know, we, you know, somebody just quit or somebody's sick or whatever. Do you mind coming in? It was like, wow, this, the tables have turned, you know, from me yeah. to you guys come and call in. <laughs> right. Nice. Yeah. Now they're over at the restaurant crying and needing your help. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's really, I mean, like I said, part of the reason I wanted to kind of revisit that story is it's just so interesting, I think, but for people that end up with significant jobs in working with animals, animal welfare, wildlife, in your case, mostly, et cetera. I mean, often there is like a truly a lifelong passion that's demonstrated and, and somehow one way or another it surfaces early on. And a story like yours, I think, it can be inspirational because it's like you, you seem to know as a little kid, like, hey, uh, animals are it for me and I just got to figure out how to get there while I am just a little kid because later I'm going to, I know I'm going to do it as a, an adult. Yeah. I mean, I always knew, in fact, my husband, he says it's, you know, it's one of the most charming things about me and one of the most infuriating. Um, <laughs> what's what's the infuriating part that you knew so early? <laughs> you, well, yeah, that not everybody has that luxury of knowing yeah. what I want to do. This is going to make me happy and I'm just going to do it and I'm going to keep going until I make it happen. Um, you know, he's had a bunch of different careers and it's funny. I've actually brought him into the animal world now with me, you know, but, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't so clear when he was so young. And I do think a lot of people struggle with finding that passion. Sure. And so I'm just, like you said, it's, you know, it's, it's a great blessing, but I think from the outside people are like, seriously, like you never tried anything else. I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> but the, what well, the important part of that is that you, your passion has never wavered. I mean, sometimes people start off with something as a kid, especially like sports or other things like that. And then they, get into their 20s or thereabouts or college something happens or whatever and it's like yeah i was really into that and then i found this new passion and kind of made a right turn but every step of the way as far as i know at least it's been animals 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 for you and it still is obviously yeah definitely i mean that is there's nothing that excites me more that i would rather be doing so it's yeah um, I consider myself very, very lucky. No, that's great. And, of course, it's it's played out in this kind of quintessential way, propelling you to the job running a Bush Wildlife Sanctuary. So uh, just in case some people might have just tuned in now, listen, let me just let folks know this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Amy Kite, Executive Director of Bush Wildlife Sanctuary, a wildlife refuge, vet hospital, and rehabilitation center in Jupiter, Florida, housing some 200 animals permanently. The sanctuary recently bought a 19-acre parcel of land and is preparing to move the entire operation including all the animals to that new location so uh, that's mainly what we're going to be talking about today although we'll have some some offshoots from that but if you'd like to ask uh, Amy a question or offer a comment about wildlife about just this uh, ambitious move or anything else please call 813-239-9663 email dj at wmnf.org or text 813 813- Four three three zero eight eight five. So Bush uh, Wildlife Sanctuary is is truly an unusual place with kind of a singular combination of traits. Maybe to get a better understanding of the scope of of challenges involved in this relocation, maybe you could take us on a little bit of a verbal guided tour of the sanctuary culminating maybe with details about the animals who live there because that itself uh, seems like a, a nutty challenge just because we're not talking about moving a few horses or some farm animals. I mean, we've got, you know, gators and crocs and bobcats and bears and snakes and stuff. So, but maybe just give us a little bit of a, just an overview beyond just sort of the breezy uh, description that I gave earlier in the show. 
Sure. So uh, basically, Bush Wildlife Sanctuary has a twofold mission. And number one is to be a wildlife hospital. So we take in sick, injured, and orphaned wild animals, primarily native from the state of Florida, and the goal is to rehabilitate them and get them back in the wild. So, for instance, last year, for the year of 2020, we admitted 5,679 patients, and that represented 265 different species. So that alone, some days we get up to 50 new patients a day in. Um, And that's quite the undertaking. That's usually during our baby season. Uh, With that, what we've come to realize is that a lot of our patients are here because they have been affected by humans. So we get animals that have been hit by cars, tangled in fishing line, illegal gunshots, kept illegally as pets, attacked by people's pets, all sorts of things. But what we noticed very early on, and, and the sanctuary itself has been around since 1983, was that the wildlife hospital portion was really a humanitarian effort, and it was kind of putting a Band-Aid onto a larger problem. So the goal would be through education, you would start to teach people about these animals, teach appreciation for them, also how to coexist with them, and that over time, hopefully, you know, the greater appreciation for our native habitats and our animals and our ecosystems would develop in such that you wouldn't see as much of the human-related ailments. Of course, we all know, though, over the decades, Florida has continued to grow in urban environments. There's more interaction between wildlife and people right in their own backyards. So we haven't necessarily seen a decline in the number of animals. We've actually seen an increase in the number of animals we get in on an annual basis. Um, with the education portion of it, we are open to the public six days a week, and we have yeah, just over 200 permanent species of animals that live with us. These are all creatures that have been permanently impaired, so they might be blind in one eye. It might be a cat, you know, a bobcat that's been declawed because someone tried to keep it as a pet, hmm. a whole different variety of reasons. Yeah. And those are our permanent educational ambassadors. They can teach their story and get people engaged so much quicker than any person trying to tell you how amazing they are. You know, learning about them, their stories, seeing them, watching them thrive still and have a new purpose for their species, which is just, you know, the education aspect of it is really what's so much fun to watch people. You know, when people bring us an animal, they're usually quite upset. It's traumatic for them. Whatever has happened with it, whether they cause an issue or they found the animal and can't believe that somebody else wouldn't help it, you know, that's a different situation. When people come here to learn and to see the animals and they, they actually know the animals by name, yeah. it's a really special thing. And so all of those guys are going to be moving with us to the new property. And it's funny because, you know, the goal is to be moved by March of 2022, which seems, you know, far away, but is actually right around the corner. You're looking at like 15 months. Um, we've had to already begin training with some of our species because we have bears, panthers, eagles, otters, bobcat, deer, alligator, all sorts of things. And if we can start training them now, for instance, our panthers, they're being injection trained. So they'll actually come over to the side of their enclosure, present their hip, and we can inject them without using any kind of dart equipment. It's just like you or I getting a vaccine. Mm. And by doing this starting now, when the day does come, the That injection is not going to have just sterile saline in it, but will actually have drugs to anesthetize the animal. It will not be as traumatic for them. Yeah. You know, hopefully they'll be ready. It'll be part of their daily routine. 
you know, they'll fall asleep, and then when they wake up, they'll be in their brand new home. Yeah. That'll be a little odd, but at least it won't be nearly as traumatic as going through a whole darting situation. Sure. Adrenaline. All, all the stress. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to get, obviously, delve into more of that kind of detail in a moment, since that's kind of the core of our conversation. But I'd like to back up, if I could, for just a moment. When you talk about, uh, I guess, basically upwards of 56 or more, a hundred animals or patients, as you call them, were brought to the sanctuary in 2020. Is there a certain kind of animals that are particularly commonly brought to the sanctuary uh, out of that? The two top species that we got in last year was Virginia opossum mm-hmm. and uh, cottontail rabbit. Yeah. And, and that's pretty common. Yeah. And are the rabbits brought there be- when they're babies, super young babies that are found and people don't know what else to do because all of a sudden there's a, a baby rabbit like on their property or doorstep or whatever that might be that they think, oh. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. A, a, lot of the, a lot of the rabbits, you know, are what we would call kidnapped. You know, oh, I found this in my yard. Well, yeah, mom's out looking for food. Leave it alone, you know, and that's yeah. where the education really comes in. You know, you can take, like, if you find a little nest of baby bunnies in your yard, you can, um, you know, put a couple branches over top of it to create a pattern to make sure that if the pattern's moved, mom's been there. You can put a little flower around it so if the flower's moved, you know, mom's been there. You know, so that's where we really try to educate and teach people to kind of leave wildlife alone. Um, what a lot of people don't realize about the bunnies in particular is basically once their eyes open, they can start eating everything in the world. Anything that's green is food. But they're tiny. They fit in the palm of your hand. So yeah. like there's no way this animal is supposed to be alone. Yeah, it really is. Wildlife has to grow up fast. Well, that's the thing. I, I think it's hard to have the right instincts when you see a baby bunny, for example, only because I'm speaking from experience where there was one that was kind of near our doorstep and uh, not really quite sure how it got there, but there's a couple of suspects. And, and we just thought, well... There's no mom around, and we, if we probably had had this conversation with you, maybe we would have thought, okay, maybe if we don't bring it to Bush necessarily, but just put it somewhere where hopefully mom can find it, although we didn't know where that was. But um, but also, it was so tiny, and I thought, geez, it just seems frail, and uh, so it just felt like help. You know, we need we need people with expertise, and we don't have that kind of expertise, certainly. So, but it also sounds like once again, probably by doing so, we made the chances for that bunny to survive probably less good. Ironically, well, here's what's been amazing over the past few years: the way that technology has advanced is fantastic. Because if you're not sure. And the Internet has a lot of wonderful information, but it has a lot of very poor information also. So pretty much any state, you can go into the Wildlife Commission or Department of Natural Resources, and you can find rehabilitators in your area. Reach out, send them a picture, you know, email a picture in, something like that, and we can do a general assessment at that point. Is it old enough to be on its own? Is it not? Are there extra factors? Could it possibly have been attacked by a cat? Was it dropped by a hawk maybe? You know, and we can try to talk you through that. And like I said, it's all about the education of it and deciphering at what point we need to help them. But so much of our wildlife, especially during their, their youth, they really are. They are fragile and they look very fragile, but nature can take care of itself pretty well. Yeah. So it's just a matter of weighing it all out. Yeah, well, again, we circle back to seeing the virtues of the, the educational component of Bush Wildlife Sanctuary. Because, again, if you're visiting those things or attending some demonstrations or classes or whatever, then the next time something like that comes up, you'll say, oh, wait, here's what I learned there. 
I'm not taking it in. I'm going to move it right over here or not even touch it at all or whatever the case may be. And um, probably radically increasing the prospects for that animal to be fine. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what we're here for. And I recommend that for anybody wherever they're at. Yeah. So, again, this is uh, Talking Animals on Duncan's Trust. My guest is Amy Kite, the executive director of Bush Wildlife Sanctuary, a sprawling multifaceted facility and permanent home for some 200 animals, all of which is about to be moved to a new location. So we invite you to join the conversation. You have questions about wildlife, about the Bush Wildlife Sanctuary, about animals in and around your yard or house or whatever. Amy can answer all those and more. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885. So I guess really the $64,000 question, or maybe it's a much larger figure, is what were the chief reasons that you wanted to move Bush Wildlife Sanctuary to this larger uh, space? Well, a real easy one is each year we have been seeing an increase between 8 and 10% of the amount of patients that we're getting in. So it doesn't seem like a huge thing, but when you're talking each year, you're adding up to, like last year was only 5,200 animals. We, we went up by about 500 patients this year. Mm. Just sheer size. The current location we're at, we've been here for 22 years. It's been a great partnership with the Loxhatchee River District. Um, but we currently are licensing 11 acres and we're really focused on about six acres because we've got some beautiful natural pine flatwoods and some natural wetlands on here that you're obviously not going to build anything on. So we're looking at about six acres and we're just really outgrown. And this opportunity, there's a piece of property, you know, about five miles west. So it's really not a much further drive for people to come visit us or to bring us animals. It's still in the same community, um, but it's 19.6 acres. There's still some of it that's preserved wetlands, and we're going to leave that alone. But it definitely lets us expand on over 15 acres rather than being confined to six. Yeah. And that just gives us the opportunity to not only give our permanent residents uh, larger enclosures um, and, and to do things different. I mean, you know how it is. If you ever built anything the first time you build it seems great and then you start learning the quirks oh we should have done this different oh what if we would have done that Mm. and so it's going to be wonderful for us to be able to kind of take our original designs tweak them a little bit and make them even better for our current residents as well as being able to expand our rehabilitation efforts yeah Um, most of your wildlife rehabilitators are actually in people's backyards it's the kindness of people who love wildlife and they open their homes they get their licensing through the state Um, but they're literally doing it out of their home. This will allow us not only to expand our efforts, but to also build enclosures and flight exercise pens and things like that, where we can offer other people throughout the state of Florida, other rehabilitators, the opportunity, hey, when your animal's ready, it's eating on its own, it needs to start flight conditioning. If you want, you can transfer it to us. We can utilize what we have and give even more animals the best opportunity at getting back in the wild and having a successful release and hopefully long life back out there again. Yeah. So two quick things. One is um, I'm going to invite one of our callers into the conversation. Then I have a couple more questions about the, the size, current and future. Uh, and also, my other quick thing is: Do we are we hearing at least one patient in the background? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of chilly here for South Florida. Okay. So when it when it drops below fifty five degrees, we bring some of the animals indoors. Okay. They're not yeah. used to it. You know, they yeah. they would behave different out in the wild. But for sure. So um, some of our permanent parrots who are here to teach people about the difference between native and exotics, and also exotic pet ownership, are actually in the building right now, and so they're 
they're chatting up behind us. <laughs> oh, that's great. I mean, the show is called Talking Animals. So to me, this is perfect. So uh, anyway, <laughs> let's uh, let's take one of our callers here. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Amy Kite. Good morning, Duncan. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. A friend of mine in Northport yeah. told me a story about, um, and thank you both for this really timely subject today. She saw this big cat, which she said was a bobcat, and it was laying in the sun in her backyard. And she approached it. She took a picture of it. She could see that it was breathing, but it was resting, so she just let it alone. That night, it had moved to a a different area, but it was still in her yard, and it had stopped breathing. Well, she called animal control, and I believe she called the sheriff's department as well, and was told that she had to deal with it herself. She called me, and I said, well, if it's now deceased, it seems like finding out the cause of its death, unless it had no teeth and was it was obviously an old cat. Anyway, I, I called her and encouraged her to call, and I don't know if she might also. So how does a civilian deal with an unresponsive uh, local and state authorities in their apparently not either interested or perhaps um, underfunded. Thank you. I'll take my answers off. Okay. Thanks for your call. Thanks for your question. Amy? Yeah, no, thank you very much. It's You've nailed it on the head there. At least I, I can only speak really for you know Palm Beach County and the surrounding areas that we work with, but underfunded is exactly that when you're talking about the government agencies. You know, there's a, a balance, and I don't really get into politics and things like that. I kind of live in my little animal bubble world, and I'm very happy there, <laughs> um, as horrible as that sounds. But um, so a lot of your local governments are where falls into when you have deceased animals. And there's a big difference between if people want to pay for a service through the government where they come out and, and get the animals. I know Palm Beach County used to do that. Oh, gosh, I'm going back probably a decade or even 15 years ago. And then as different things went into place and budgets got cut, services also got cut. And that was one of the things here in Palm Beach County is there is no government agency that picks up deceased animals. Um, for someone like Bush Wildlife Sanctuary or other nonprofit wildlife places, we don't have the resources to do that. We barely have the resources to have volunteers pick up animals that are still alive, needing our assistance. Um, and so it's tough for the civilian because you don't have somebody who's going to come pick it up. And this is just going to be very blunt. Most of the times in your area, you're not allowed to, to put it in a trash can. Um, a lot of your jurisdictions don't allow you to bury it. Um, because of water tables and things like that. Um, so sometimes it's just recommended, you know, let nature take its course, let other animals get a meal, things like that. There's not a really good, easy answer, if I'm going to be very honest. Um, and as far as, you know, wanting to find out why the animal passed away, really the only time, at least down here, that the government gets involved is if there is suspect. Well, if it's a a highly endangered species, you know, if you had a Florida panther that passed away, they want to find out why, because you're talking about an animal that's that's highly endangered. If it's a more common species like a bobcat, they're really only going to get involved if they think it is something that has has harmed that animal that would also affect humans. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if someone had been bit by the cat and then it passed away, they're going to want to do rabies testing and see if that could have been a factor. But other than that, they don't get involved too much because it is generally going to be the animal may have sustained internal injuries because it was hit by a car, but you don't see anything external. It could just be an old animal. 
Um, it could have got into a toxin somewhere, even if, whether it be a natural toxin or a man-made toxin, um, things of that nature. It could just be an organ failure for some reason. So really, they don't have those resources, and it's kind of a long way of saying you're exactly right. It's underfunding, and it's not in the budget for them. All right. Well, thank you for your question, uh, caller, and thank you for your uh, great informative answer, Amy. So as far as the size of the thing, just quickly, I think you're, if I got this correct, you're on about six acres now of the 11 that you, I guess, presently lease, and the new place is going to be 19. So that's three times what you're currently occupying or nearly twice the space you potentially could be using. So I know you mentioned the yearly increase in patients, but what all will you do at the new place that you're currently unable to do? And will you use the 19 gradually over time or once the move is complete, will the, all 19 be utilized from, from the get-go? five acres is going to be left the natural wetlands and the natural habitat that's there. Mm-hmm. One of the wonderful things about our current location when you visit is we do have those natural areas. So not only do you see the animals, but you see the cypress trees and the wetland and you see the pine trees and the flatwoods. So we definitely want to preserve some of that. And probably later on, once we're already moved onto the property and got the animals taken care of, you know, we'd love to build more boardwalks, and educational signage to really talk about our natural ecosystems here in Florida. Um, five acres is going to be basically set aside strictly for rehabilitation purposes. So um, that will not be open to the public, but that will include our wildlife hospital. That'll include all of our rehab enclosures, uh, flight habitats, things of that nature. The other basically uh, middle section, which is 10 acres, we're just going to kind of expand. You know, like I said, we'll have the opportunity to give some of our animals a little bit larger enclosures. We will have our amphitheater, our educational building like we have here at the current facility, hoping that we're going to be able to do more fundraising events there, be able to do more, um, you know, group team building, things like that. You, You know, COVID this year and the pandemic, everybody's had to kind of change the way they're doing things. Yeah. And one of the things with us being basically an outdoor facility is we loan ourselves to being a little bit safer than, than bringing people together indoors. So being able to have those spaces where people can come together, safely gather, you know, depending on where we are in the pandemic, that's going to all be not only ways of bringing in revenue for the sanctuary, but also bringing in people who might not necessarily be looking to learn about wildlife, well, I got you here. We're going to teach you and hopefully engage you and make you more interested than you were when you got there. Well, that sounds great. Does the expanded space, since it's significant, really, uh, and it sounds like everything's kind of expanding uh, proportionally, but but does it also telegraph the creation of like a new phase of Bush thing or uh, like an, an additional program or services that maybe you're not offering or able to offer currently? There's a lot of ideas we've been kind of throwing around. Um, nothing really set in definite plans right now, so I don't want to say something and then not be able to follow through on my promises. Sure. But definitely with our education department, and again this year, things have had to really shift from uh, on-site presentations and having people here to a more global classroom, if you will, yeah. you know, doing Facebook lives and doing um, you know different YouTube videos, engaging people in a different way, school groups are still unable to come on a field trip, but we can take them on a virtual tour. And with that, we've actually launched our own podcast uh, for Bush Wildlife Sanctuary to start engaging people, um, again, in a worldwide classroom, not really just limiting ourselves to South Florida. 
Yeah, well, we'll circle back to the podcast in just a sec. But I'm kind of curious, given all this, and since Bush Wildlife, as you noted, is, is a nonprofit organization. So what did it cost to buy that 19-acre parcel of land? So that parcel that we purchased was $1.6 million. Okay, that's a pretty good deal for that kind of space, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and it's the location is prime for us you know it's funny we the organization started in 1983 down in miami and our founding director unfortunately basically lost everything in hurricane andrew Mm. in the early 90s and rather than rebuilding down there he actually relocated to jupiter farms and it was run out of his yard (laughs) like i said backyard rehabilitation for a number of years until we were able to partner with the loxhatchee river district so now that we're moving back out to the farms, right on a, a main thoroughfare there, um, easy access for people bringing us animals and coming to visit, it's almost like a homecoming for us. Yeah. You know, the community has been unbelievably supportive. Um, you never know what people are going to say when you're like, hey, I'm going to move some bears and panthers in next door. Do you mind? You can get really negative reactions. Yeah. yeah. Um, but thankfully, that hasn't been the case. People have been extremely welcoming, offering their own services, and how do we make this happen? And it's 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 absolutely incredible. Yeah. Well, also, I think people that live in a place like Jupiter Farms, and, and of course, I'm one of those people who lives in Jupiter Farms, are tend to be kind of animal-oriented. So it's not like, you know, you go into some other maybe more conventional neighborhood and say, hey, by the way, we're going to have some bears and uh, bobcats and a bunch of snakes and some other stuff uh, just, just over this fence. I hope you don't mind. And people going, you know, freaking out. A lot of people will be saying, hey, that's great, man. How can I help out? Or I'd love to meet the bear or, you know, whatever it might be. So, again, just different kind of people. And so, therefore, a different kind of reaction. Yeah, it's more rural out there. I mean, the number of people who have brought us animals over the past, you know, 30 years almost, they're, you know, they, they're happy we've helped their animals. Their kids have volunteered here. They volunteered here. So it's, it's been, you know, just, uh, like I said, the outpouring of support is extremely overwhelming. That's great. Yeah. Well, people love uh, Bush Wildlife Sanctuary. And I, I actually, when I posted something about uh, you being on the show, heard from somebody that I know that's like a, a, a birder and has been, actually been on the show, but had visited, I guess maybe her dad or something lives somewhere in Florida and was raving about the place, even though she lives in New Jersey. So it's like a lot, a lot of people have um, passed through those gates, I think, over the years and all probably had pretty, pretty cool experiences. So, uh, Aw, that's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So it's $1.6 million, So that, again, to me, is a great deal for that kind of thing. What do you anticipate in terms of other major costs like – uh, building new enclosures or, of course, setting up the new vet hospital or whatever. Is there a, a number that you kind of determine is what it's going to take to get the new Bush Wildlife Sanctuary up and running? Sure. So including the land, we are currently estimating right around $10 million. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. And, of course, that can vary. You know, there's there's definitely X factors that are out there. You know, right now it's interesting because there is somewhat of a, a little construction boom going on. You know, the, the property uh, prices are, were down. Your know, financing was really, really cheap for a while there. So finding contractors and, and you know, finding decent rates. Um, of course, permitting. You never know with permitting and mitigation on property because there is some wetlands out there. Yeah. Um, you know, there are those those outliers and, and just the cost of materials. You know, I mean, I spoke to someone today who's one of our suppliers. We needed some new nets for when we go out and rescue animals. And, you know, they're having trouble getting the handles made. They're a metal handle. 
Um, and that's just because of the pandemic. So there are those things that we really don't know what we're going to run up against. Yeah. But we're hoping if we can go, you know, soup to nuts, if you will, <laughs> sure. and stay under that $10 million budget, I think we'd be pretty happy. And how much of that $10 million uh, nut is, is already covered and how much of those funds need to be raised by a campaign of one kind or another in the coming period? So we have a little bit back in an endowment. The goal would be not to really spend that Mm -hmm. because once we move, I mean, you can imagine if you move from a thousand square foot house to a 3000 square foot house, all your bills are going to go up. You know, your electric bill is going to go up. Your water bill is going to go up, you know, all this sort of stuff. And we recognize that we're going to be up against that when we move. So currently Bush Wildlife Sanctuary operates at $1.7 million a year. And we really don't want to touch what's in our savings because you never know when that rainy day is going to come. Sure. Pandemic, hurricanes, what have you, a yeah. recession. And you really don't You want to make sure that you can be there for the long haul. So we're really kind of going into this with, you know, we were able to uh, obtain the property. Um, we're going to have to do a little bit of creative financing <laughs> to get everything moved. Um, and then really most of it is just going to be going through donations, you know, speaking to our donors, lots of naming opportunities, hopefully some corporate sponsorship in our community. Um, but we're going to we're going to get real creative in that one. I'm sure. Yeah. So touched on and let's delve into it a little bit more. So taking a cue from, well, I guess just about everyone, uh, the Sanctuary did launch a podcast. So tell me a little bit about the podcast and um, what its uh, purpose is and how that may shift over time. So it's very interesting. So you mentioned you live in Jupiter Farms, as do I, and they have a podcast. The Jupiter Farms residents have a podcast, they do. And a local resident, he hosts it and he edits it and everything. And I ended up doing the podcast and had a wonderful time, as I always do when I do these. Um, And afterwards, he kind of reached out and he said, look, I'm, I'm looking to kind of build my portfolio. I'd like to do something that everybody can listen to, families can listen to it, my kids can listen to it. What about kind of a behind the scenes of Bush Wildlife? And so we just started working on it together. And it's called Inside Bush Wildlife Sanctuary. It's a once a month podcast. Episodes are generally under 15 minutes in length. And the fun thing, because we, for me, at least personally, this isn't my forte. I talk about animals. I take care of animals, but I don't know podcasts. Mm. Um, So I really didn't understand quite what our audience was going to be, but I figured any audience is better than than nobody knowing podcasts. Sure, of course. And um, some of the teachers, local teachers in the area, have actually picked up on it and made it somewhat of an assignment. So it's very family-friendly. We delve into kind of different issues that affect the sanctuary and then also try to highlight some of the animals that are here or some of the stories like rescue stories or uh, the stories of, of animals that are our ambassadors. And I thought it was great. The teachers kind of picked up on it. The kids are listening to an episode a month, and then we've actually gotten grant money um, from local foundations that will allow us to then offer those classrooms virtual tours so that we can actually take them on a you know, COVID-friendly, safe, virtual tour of the sanctuary since they can't come here and just really try to engage these kids. So it's, it's constant you know, points of contact that will hopefully stick with them, all culminating in a new adventure. And hopefully they'll go home and tell their families and they'll come here. So it's, um, it's been really fun to not only work on, but also to watch and kind of see who's, who's gravitated towards it. That's great. Good for you guys. So we're kind of nearing the end of our time, Amy, and I had a couple questions. And, of course, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the specifics of the relocation of the animals. But I'm just curious with the monies that uh, we've talked about that need to be raised to kind of get the new 
place uh, up and running and the, the land and the whole shebang. The current admission policy at Bush Wildlife Sanctuary is, shall we say, relaxed. <laughs> for, for, for coming in and enjoying the sanctuary, it's suggested a donation is highly welcome, but there is really is no ticket price which is, I think, so great because so many people that families and whatever that might be on a budget or whatever that, you know, they can go and they can still donate what they can, but they're not, they're not limited. They're not prevented from going. Do you anticipate that policy changing just because of the finances that you kind of have to bear in mind as you make this change? I certainly hope not. Okay. I really do. Yeah. Um, our, our founding director, his, he always would say, and, and I just love this, is bush wildlife is a sanctuary for animals and for humans. Um, and there really is, I think, so few places like us that, you know, you can enjoy the animals, you can enjoy the nature, and there isn't a, a large price tag attached to it. Yeah. Um, that I, I would hate, absolutely hate for that to change. And I really don't know if it would be beneficial, to yeah. be honest with you. Right. I mean, you know, last week was a massive week for us because it was between the holidays. Sure. So we're always busy. People are out of school. The weather's beautiful. We want to go outside. Water's a little cold at the beach. Let's go to Bush Wildlife. Yeah. And, you know, when we collect the donation boxes at the end of the night and you compare the amount of people that came in with what they're giving, I would hate, you know, and I know some people are giving a dollar and some people are giving $20, but I think at the end of the day, it all kind of evens out. And we've seen that as people are able to be more generous, they are more generous with us. Yeah, I and think when you have that kind of policy and you have something as special as Bush Wildlife Sanctuary, I think people give really what they legitimately can. So if, the, if that person gave a buck, that's all they probably legitimately could swing. And if the other people gave 20, that's they were happy to do so. And uh, mm -hmm. so I really think it, it encourages people just to, like, support uh, the the sanctuary to whatever extent they can. And uh, they'll come back and they'll, you know, support it in a different way if they have a couple more bucks next time. And um, so that's really cool. Well, I, I sort of was hoping to get into a few, uh, just one quick question because we're, we're actually over time now, unfortunately, thanks to me. <laughs> but um, no, no, it was it was me. I should have timed this a little bit differently. But I'm just curious, like, is there a window between when the new place is available to you and that you're still in the old place? In other words, is there is there a, a process by which you'll be able to gradually move animals over and not feel like there's a... Uh, there's a ticking clock to, to do something that's kind of fairly uh, complicated in some ways, given some of the animals. In an ideal situation, yes, we would have kind of a phased roll through. Yeah. It's just going to be really, really interesting to see how it works out, like I said, with the contractors, with permitting, things like that. Um, the other thing, too, is, is just with our staff, being able to maintain two facilities. So more than likely, there's probably going to be like a week where yeah, the current okay. wildlife closes down. Yeah. And we just completely focus on setting everybody up the new location and then open that up there. Um, because trying to, to maintain two places, take care of animals here, animals there, where's their food, it's over at the other place. You know, just those kind of logistics would be a lot, a lot easier if we could just kind of... You know, get it all done. Right, okay. And, and honestly, probably 80% of the animals aren't too hard to move. There's only okay. about 20% that are really intense. Tricky, yeah. All right, well, maybe what we'll do is that at some point after you've made that move, maybe we'll have you back on at least for a brief conversation just to uh, hear a little post-mortem on how the whole shebang went. So, uh, anyways. I love it. Thank yeah. you. So, we've been speaking with Amy Kai, again, Executive Director of Bush Wildlife Sanctuary. The website to find out more about the sanctuary and some of the animals that we touched on and some we didn't get a chance to even mention. Bush Wildlife, it's B-U-S-C-H, wildlife.org. So, Amy, thanks so much and good luck on the move. And we'll, like I say, we'll follow up with you after the move is complete. Awesome. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. All right. Same to you. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.
In a moment, I'll speak with our longtime Greyhound correspondent, Don Goldstein, who will address some details of Florida Greyhound racing ending when 2020 did, particularly what it means for the dogs. Not quite as clear-cut, maybe, as you might hope. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with Martha Kelly, a wonderful low-key stand-up who's also star of the FX series Baskets. Here's Martha Kelly with a piece called Horses Hate That We Ride Them in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Obviously, I love animals a lot, and um, I recently have become a vegetarian and also kind of an animal activist. Um, I'm not in PETA, but I have watched Blackfish a bunch of times, and uh, I bring it up at the drop of a hat. And if you haven't seen it, it's a documentary about this killer whale that was captured from the wild when he was a baby. And he's lived in captivity his whole life, and he's killed three people. And the last one was his trainer. And um, he's not the only killer whale in captivity that has attacked trainers. There's another one that killed a trainer. And then there's a bunch of them that have attacked and injured trainers. And SeaWorld has been around for over 50 years now. I just feel like it should be really obvious at this point that we need to stop encouraging these whales to pursue careers in show business because they are super unprofessional and they should... Oh, well... Thanks, guys. I was kind of nervous about taking a drink of water. I was afraid I was going to accidentally throw it in my face, but um, little, a little high energy. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um. That was Martha Kelly in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Horses Hate That We Ride Them, taken from one of her appearances on Comedy Central. Now it's time to speak with Don Goldstein. The veteran listeners know is our longtime Greyhound correspondent. And while dog racing became no longer permitted in Florida as 2020 gave way to 2021, this hasn't meant that all those dogs are done racing. To help us make sense of this and a few other details about the end of Greyhound racing in Florida, here's Don Goldstein back on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, joining us. Happy New Year. And I have to say... Uh, I miss speaking with you, uh, you know, more regularly, though the reason we don't have as much occasion to, to talk is, I guess, pretty good overall. Yeah, I think it's a, a good result, although I, I single stop most weeks, as you know. Yeah. So speaking of which, I mean, as I've noted a couple of times here, uh, indeed, as we had talked about many times leading up to it, dog racing officially did end in Florida uh, as 2020 came to an end. Folks sort of picturing an idyllic life now for all those racing dogs may need to alter that that image a little bit. So tell us a little bit about what, what it really does mean for some of the dogs that had been Florida racing dogs. Well, as you know, all the 11 of the tracks that had been in Florida are now closed. Uh, the last two were Derby Lanes, which ended a week ago Sunday, um, and Palm Beach Kennel Club, which uh, lasted until 10.59 last Thursday night, uh, the last minute that they could. Yeah. Uh, so the, so but the other tracks that all closed out over the preceding almost two years, um, so there weren't that many dogs left, about 600 at Derby Lanes, and I suspect about the same number at, um, uh, at Palm Beach Kennel Club. And those sound like a lot of dogs, but it really isn't compared to what we had in 2018 when Amendment 13 was approved by the voters of Florida. Uh, the majority of the other dogs have been adopted out. Um, the, the good ones, 
you know, the winners um, have all now been moved up to the four remaining tracks in the United States. There's one in Arkansas, there's one in uh, Iowa, and two in West Virginia. Um, so there are still four tracks running in the United States. Yeah. And so I guess the so-called winners, as you mentioned, in this transaction, and I guess in my mind, are sort of end up being kind of uh, non-winners because then they... Those are the ones that have been shepherded into these other remaining tracks to keep racing. Right. Um, I will tell you that both uh, uh, Arkansas and Iowa um, are right now slated to close down next year in 2022. Um, West Virginia has not indicated any other, any further plans. Um, mm-hmm. My own opinion is that two tracks are not viable um, as a racing industry, so I suspect yeah. they will be shut down too. I got you. And then I guess uh, those dogs will finally then uh, be eligible for adoption when the the, the end of the the racing as we know it is complete. Yeah. uh, All indications are uh, the National Greyhound Association has promised that no dogs will be be euthanized uh, due to the the shutdown of racing, and and we have no reason not to believe them. Uh, The majority of dogs around here, as a matter of fact, it's been a long time since we've been able to get any dogs. Most of the adoption groups here in the Tampa Bay area um, have had very limited dogs available for the last year or so. And is that just straightforward? Because I know one of the many things that we talked about surrounding the amendment and, and how people voice their position on that, especially as Greyhound groups, was that there was sort of this punitive element that, depending on what your support for or was or wasn't for the amendment, then you may or may not have the ability to offer those dogs to adoption as opposed to some other groups that maybe had a different perspective. Yeah, the group that I'm associated with has been blackballed by the industry since the day after the election, um, and several other groups in, in Florida have been that way. The groups that have been able to get um, the, the retired dogs, the rescuing dogs, um, were racing groups. Um, they're the only ones that are approved for adoption by the yeah. NGA, the National Ground Association. But, you know, uh, and we've talked about this in the past, uh, our group made a conscious decision to support very actively amendment 13 right um, we knew that was a possibility but we honestly felt it was it was worth it if amendment 13 passed which of course it did right so it's good to be sort of on the right side of that even if uh, it means uh hey no uh no adoptable dogs for you and uh, we're, we're mad at you so that's you know any rescue group worth its salt in my opinion um their first job would be to put themselves out of business yeah we don't find it a bad thing that there are no dogs needing rescuing right now greyhounds yeah no that's that's a good place to be given the uh the history and kind of how rough it was for so many years for sure right so um the the breed is going to be around i mean we we heard in the lead up to amendment 13 and we're still hearing it that the the greyhound breed will disappear um that's just not true yeah um as you and i thought most breeds were developed for a working purpose. When was the last time you ever saw a Yorkshire Terrier go into the mines, which is what they were bred for? When was the last time a, a, a Labrador, very many Labrador retrievers, retrieved a tennis ball or a Frisbee? You know, um, the, the breeds are kept viable, kept around because we love them. And I don't personally see any change uh, in the Greyhound breed due to that. Yeah, that, that would seem pretty uh, drastic and kind of far-fetched. I would think. Well, that's what the industry is saying. And, and sure. 
Well, people have said a lot of things uh, in this in this realm, so all those things have to be taken, I think, pretty carefully, uh, one by one, and uh, examined. But um, so, so Don, anything else we should know as kind of our uh, wrap up on dog racing and the end of twenty twenty, what that has meant? I just want people to know that there's not a flood of dogs out there looking for homes. There are a few, uh, few left. Uh, Derby Lanes is has sent most of their dogs out either for adoption or for continuing their racing careers. Uh, Palm Beach, I suspect, is doing the same. I don't know for a fact, but in just looking at web pages for a lot of the the uh, uh, rescue groups, the greyhound groups around the state, there's just not many dogs available. Okay. So uh, don't I, I don't want people to feel like that. That, that there's this huge abundance of dogs looking for homes. There just is not in Florida. All right. Well, that puts us right at the end of time for a show. Thank you so much for joining us again. This has been Don Goldstein, and this is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rob Lurie is up next after NPR News headlines, and we'll see you next week on Talking Animals. Thanks.